Welcome everyone to the Medspiration Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nav, and this is episode number 15 with Dr. Aaron Spitz. So, <laughs> here's a model of a penis. Dr. Spitz is the lead delegate of urology for the American Medical Association. When it comes to the penis, he literally wrote the book. In my book, I have a, a five-step plan for maximum penis health, and that's really about prevention and staying as healthy as you can. And those tips are, one, diet. You want to eat vegetables, green leafy vegetables that give you that nitric oxide that pumps up your blood vessels. You want to exercise because exercise improves your blood vessels as well. And again, the penis is all about blood flow. You want to avoid toxins. Uh, you want to avoid heavy alcohol and cigarette and, and drug abuse. Uh, you want to get a good night's sleep, believe it or not. Sleep promotes your testosterone and it promotes the blood flow and it decreases the anxiety and the adrenaline which interferes with your erections. But probably the most surprising of all the tips, and even though I've joked about it, it's no joke, you want to cut out pornography. Amazingly, viewing pornography on a frequent and regular basis actually shrinks centers of your brain that are important for your sexual response. Actually changes your brain on MRI studies and it ruins your ability over time to have natural healthy erections and it's ruining young people's natural healthy erections, even high school students. In fact, what the scientific studies are showing is that the more meat men eat, the more quickly they lose their manly manhood. Steak, that's what a man eats. Made from stuff guys need. Eat like a man, man. The results that we're seeing are very exciting. I think this is going to wake a lot of people up. I think it's gonna wake up people who have penises and I think it's gonna wake up people who like people who have penises. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you're having a blessed day. Thank you for pressing play and tuning into the Medspiration podcast. In this episode, we're bringing you a world leader in male reproductive health. I learned about Dr. Aaron Spitz after watching the James Cameron Netflix documentary, The Game Changers. After watching it, I bought his book, read it all the way through, and I instantly knew that I had to have him on our podcast so he could share his expertise with all of us. If you'd like to add to this conversation, please message us on Instagram. The handle is at Medspiration. We'd love to hear from you. And again, guys, thank you so much for helping our podcast grow. If you've been enjoying this content, please go on iTunes and rate us five stars and leave a review. Let us know what parts of the podcast that you love most. Thank you, guys. And without further ado, let the Medspiration begin. Dr. Aaron Spitz, welcome to the Medspiration podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nov, and today I'm pleased to announce to our listeners out there that we have the American Medical Association's chief representative of urologists on our show. He's devoted his career to the health and well-being of tens of thousands of penises, and today he'll be enlightening us on everything and anything related to male reproductive health. Dr. Spitz, without further ado, can you please introduce yourself? Yes, hi. Well, thanks, Dr. Nob. It's great to be here. Um, I'm Aaron Spitz. I'm a urologist. And I specialize in male reproductive health, male sexual health. And uh, I've uh, put out a book uh, called The Penis Book, A Doctor's Guide to Everything from Size to Function and Everything in Between. 
and it's written for the general public. And I've also been recently featured, and my book was featured in a documentary called The Game Changers, which looks at the health benefits, particularly for elite athletes, of a plant-based diet. And I'm really excited to talk about any or all of these topics with you today. That's beautiful. So I read your book, which you just named, The Penis Book, A Doctor's Complete Guide to the Penis. And I got to say, I learned a ton from it. And the thing that I enjoyed most was how funny you made the book. I think Thank it, you. Uh, the charismatic approach really worked because this can be a hard topic to discuss. And as you mentioned, the, the Game Changers documentary. So I initially came across your work when I podcasted with Dr. Dean Ornish. And he had mentioned that you were going to be on the James Cameron documentary, Game Changers. And, you know, when I watched it, that's when I knew I had to speak with you. <laughs> Very good. Thank you. Thank you. So for those of our listeners out there, that documentary is on Netflix right now. And if they haven't seen it, can you tell them about the experiment that you did in the documentary? Yes. Yeah, so we did an experiment to see if you could observe an effect on the penis on erections from a meal, a single meal. Because earlier in the filming of the documentary, they were able to observe a single meal effect where they drew their blood right after they ate uh, an animal meal, and then they drew their blood after they ate a plant-based meal. And you could see the animal meal blood coming out of their circulation was way more cloudy. And it made a big impact. And so I was asked by the makers of the film, can we do something like that for sexual function? Well, it wasn't going to be drawing blood out of the penis, I can tell you that. Yeah. No one's going to go for that. Uh, and that wouldn't matter anyway, because we were really trying to find something that is a function, not just how the blood looks. And after a lot of uh, deliberation, we arrived at this experiment that we that were performed. And this experiment was just a experiment done at that time only. It's not part of a large clinical trial. It's not enough data that I'm going to make a, um, you know, a scientific claim over but it was a true experiment, and the results were pretty amazing. And what that experiment was, was we used a device called a Rigiscan, which is used to monitor whether or not a person's having an erection. And it's usually used to monitor that while the person is asleep to see if they're able to have erections while they're unconscious. Because in the normal state, men have erections while they are asleep and unconscious whether they're dreaming or not, whether they're dreaming about something sexy or something scary, doesn't matter. Their bodies make erections normally. The scanner has these little rings that go on the penis, and when it's erect, it can tell, and it can document on a graph when it's happening, how often it's happening, and for how long it happened, and how hard it was when it happened. And it gives you this printout over the course of the night while you're asleep. And because when you're trying to measure the erection of a guy, it can be so psychological, it's tricky to measure an effect of something on a guy while he's awake and knows he's being measured, right? That's, that's like a performance anxiety. And so we chose this test to measure because it took the big head out of the way of the little head, as it were. So I honestly did not think that this experiment would show anything because mm -hmm. we think of erection problems as a very gradual, 
process that affects guys as they gradually get older and older. Finally, when they're old enough, you know, their penis doesn't work, right? And so the concept that one meal could result in some kind of effect that you could measure on an erection, to me, was unbelievable. I, didn't, I just think it would happen. And I actually declined to do this experiment for a long time. And it wasn't until the very last minute before the film finally had to be wrapped up that I agreed to give it a shot. And we got these three athletes, young, healthy, fit guys, great health practices, no alcohol, no drugs, you know, super fit. One guy's already been recruited to pro baseball straight out of college. The other guy went to play for the pros in Europe and basketball. The other guy's, I think, pursuing an Olympic career. So really, really high-level college athletes. Because what I needed to show in effect was penises that were as healthy as possible so they could react as much as possible to some kind of a stimulation or some kind of a detriment. And if you got an old penis, it's going to be fibrotic and it's not going to really react much to much, but it might not even react to Viagra. Mm -hmm. So I needed the youngest, healthiest penises that were still legal. And that's what we got. And we gave these three guys burritos for dinner. One had beef, one had chicken, one had pork, but otherwise healthy ingredients. Avocados, black beans, rice, uh, tomatoes, you know, peppers, whatever. And then we put these scans on them. It, it stored the data. And then the next night, we gave them vegan burritos. Same ingredients, except we swapped out the animal portions for plant-based animal-like portions. So, you know, vegan chicken, vegan pork, vegan steak. And then we put the monitors on them again a second night. And then I got the printout. And in the movie, we showed that experiment being done. We had night vision cameras in their dorm rooms, watch yep. them sleep. And then we filmed the reveal. And I was blown away because what it showed in that experiment for these three guys, and I'm not making any broader claims in this, but what it showed for these three guys was that two of them had a 300% increase and one of them had a almost 500% increase in the combination of the number and the duration of erections that they had. Now, all these guys had normal erections to begin with, and the erections that they had after the animal-based burritos were normal by all standards. Mm. But the erections they had after the plant-based burritos were three to five times better than what we would consider normal. And it was really eye-opening. Yep. And it's not that they had erectile dysfunction that then got fixed by a, a single meal. And it's not that a single meal will cure your erectile dysfunction. But look, that's what one meal does to a healthy penis. What does a lifetime of meals do to your penis over your lifetime? And which kind of meals do you want to have a lifetime of? That's phenomenal. Yeah, when I watched it, um, it kind of made sense to me just because I'm always teaching medical students about alkaline tide. You know, our breathing does decrease after a huge meal, so it would make sense that that could impede some blood flow. I, found well, that I think I think that the reductionist understanding of this, you know, what, what, what is the molecular reasons of this are possibly any one of a number of things. It could be that plant based ingredients are providing more nitric oxide uh, substrate than animal based ingredients, which is true. And nitric oxide facilitates blood flow to the penis, or it could be that the animal ingredients provide more toxins that are dampening the flow that would otherwise be there without them present. 
which is true because animal-based products do provide toxins into the blood that cause uh, impairment to blood flow. That's been measured in, in the arteries of the arm uh, with, with certain uh, specialized testing. It may be other factors that aren't known, but I like to keep things as simple as possible and as, as true as possible. And it's true to say that in this experiment, the plant-based food resulted in better erections for whatever reason than the animal-based food. That's so interesting. So do you plan on publishing any research on this topic in the future? I'm sure a lot of people are curious about that. Yes, Dr. Ornish and I actually uh, have worked with other uh, top investigators to put together a protocol to do an experiment to validate uh, or further uh, investigate the experiment in the movie. And uh, we are still collaborating on that, but we haven't uh, started the study yet. But we are actively looking to uh, get that going to basically duplicate what was uh, what was seen in the film on a larger scale in a validated way. Uh, there's another investigator in New York uh, associated with a major uh, hospital who is going to be doing a study with the Rigiscan comparing vegan to uh, plant-based meals, not duplicating the scene in the movie, but looking at a similar question, again, looking at effects on sexual function on the penis, comparing those two diets and using that device. That's so cool. I'm looking forward to that. I think that'll be awesome. I'm glad you guys are doing that. One of the biggest takeaways that I had from your book was the five-step plan to maximizing penis health. Uh, my intention today is to dissect your book using these five steps as our outline. So uh, can you give everyone a brief introduction to this plan? Sure. Um, if you don't mind, I will refer to my own manuscript. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I got mine right yeah. here. Yeah, <laughs> I got mine. <laughs> Is mine bigger than yours? No. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> so let's let's turn to the five-step plan. And the five-step plan is, you know, my five-step plan for maximum penis health. But honestly, it's really for maximum health. And so the first the first step of the five-step plan is about eating, about what you eat. And I call it go fork yourself in the book. And the principle there is, uh, you know, the kind of foods you eat affect your uh, erections, your sexual function, as we, I think, demonstrated in the experiment in the Game Changers film. Exercise. So you got diet and you got exercise. And I call it sex exercise. And exercise is good for your sexual function, but there is even indeed a specific exercise that you might consider a sex exercise, and we could talk about that a little bit. Third is going offline. And what that means is getting away from the inundation of streaming pornography. Pornography has some very surprising physiologic measurable impacts on our brain and on our sexual function. Fourth step is detox, and that's going to address things like drugs, uh, excess alcohol, as well as medications that we might not have had to be on, whose side effects we might not have had to suffer if we were healthy otherwise. And then the last one I call snooze or lose. And it's about how important actually sleep is for our sexual function, including our testosterone production. So yes, those are the five steps and it would be a lot of fun to delve into those a little deeper. Absolutely, you know, I wanna start with step one, diet. Um, chapter 14 in the book, you call it putting it in your mouth. I found that really funny. 
Um, so what's the latest research about diet and male reproductive health? So there is uh, a limited amount of studies that have been done, but there is enough out there to where we have some really good, solid evidence. And what these studies are showing is that in men who have erection problems, those men that are put on diets that are predominantly plant-based or that eat more plant-based foods than those who don't, those guys show improvements for developing less erectile dysfunction than the guys who aren't eating as many plant-based. So this is true for guys in general. The more plants they're eating, the better their erections are. It's even true for diabetics. Guys with erectile dysfunction and diabetes, a really bad combination, are getting better when they eat more fruits and vegetables. And then there's diets that talk about specific foods. Um, some of them I, I, are even like cheats, like, like delicious foods. For example, I love pistachios. Pistachios are, are my favorite, uh, one of my favorite snacks. And they are grown um, uh, extensively in Turkey. Turkey's known for its pistachios, and they did a study in Turkey. And when they gave guys uh, eight ounces of pistachios a day, their erections improved. These are guys who are having problems with their erections. They had, they had clinically significant improvement in their erections after a few weeks of eating a couple of pistachios a day. Wow. And uh, so that's a great cheat. Studies show that fruits uh, and the phytochemicals that are in fruits and also some of the phytochemicals that are in wine improve erectile function. And guys that eat more of these, these food groups show improvement in their erections or get erectile dysfunction less. So yes, there is, there is clear evidence. And these, these studies are on large populations. Okay, some of these studies involve thousands and thousands of people. Some of them involve hundreds of people. But uh, the evidence is there that the more plants you eat, the better your penis gets. I love telling that to my patients. And you mentioned in the book, regardless of the variety, it shows that people have less heart disease and lower blood pressure when they actually eat more fruits and vegetables. And they also live longer, too. So, you know, I'm always a big fan of saying, hey, if Earth grows it, um, and it's in the grocery store, you should probably go eat it, you know? So I yes. found that pretty cool. Now you mentioned nitrates a little bit earlier and you mentioned foods that have nitrates in them. Um, can you explain the physiology of what nitrates can do or what foods have nitrates in them? Yeah, so uh, nitrates are molecules uh, comprised of nitrogen and oxygen that eventually get converted into nitric oxide mm. and O. Uh, one N and one O, but that is a gas and it's very short lived. But that NO gas molecule causes our arteries to open up and increase the amount of blood flowing through them. It also has an anti-aging effect on the cells that make up our arteries at the level of the mitochondria. So it keeps our arteries from aging as quickly and it allows them to have greater blood flow and improve our circulation throughout our entire body, but in particular in the penis. Mm -hmm. The way Viagra works is it allows the nitric oxide in the penis that's released when we're having an erection to stick around longer. And so when you eat plants that are rich in nitrates, you're giving your body more of that nitric oxide for your erection. Plants have more nitrates in them than animal products just across the board. Yep. That's just, you know, just as a class of food. 
if you eat a plant, you're gonna have more nitrates than if you eat an animal. But plants that are particularly known for the nitrate content include green leafy vegetables, beets, certain beans and nuts will have more than others, but the green leafy vegetables are our reliable source. And the great thing about them is that they're a reliable source of a lot of different phytonutrients, not just nitrates. So they're a really good go-to, and I would consider green leafy vegetables to be sort of foundational for your diet. But beets are an excellent source of nitrates, and athletes will consume beet juice uh, prior to an event uh, because that added nitric oxide is opening up their blood vessels, increasing the amount of blood flowing into their muscles, and improving their athletic performance. That is so cool. Uh, next, I wanted to talk about processed foods and low-fat foods. You mentioned something that I love mentioning to my patients because it can be really tricky when you are at the grocery store and you see something that's labeled with low-fat, right? So could you delve a little bit deeper into the mid-60s and 70s and kind of what the sugar industry did? Yeah, so the low-fat diet, like so many other nutritional recommendations, ended up a bust. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned earlier in our interview that I like to keep things simple. Yeah. And that's because when you start to go into these hypotheses of why something is working or not working, mm. and you start to break it down into its fundamental components and then make claims about it, so often you end up dead wrong. Right. And dead is not a word I use lightly because your assumptions were too simplistic. Well, you didn't realize that, that moving a lever over here caused something to change way over there in the body system. And low fat is a great example of that. So the, the dogma was that the fat in animals was what was causing uh, heart disease mm -hmm. and, and, and blood vessel disease. And if we eliminated the fat from animal products, we would be healthier, we would be leaner. And so there was a large-scale study called the Women's Health Study conducted that comprised thousands of women, many of them healthcare workers, nurses, and half of them were put on low-fat diet. These are animal products that are low-fat, um, you know, turkey breast, low-fat yogurt, low-fat cottage cheese, low-fat ice cream, low-fat this and that. And we're, we've seen all of these all over the shelves in the grocery oh, yeah. store. And the other half were not. They just ate their, 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 their regular old fatty foods. And at the end of many year study, the low fat women were fatter than the regular fat women. And they had more heart disease and they were sicker. So what happened? How is that possible? Well, there's a couple explanations for it. One of the things that happened was when you take fat out of an animal product, it doesn't taste very good. And so in order to make it taste palatable, they introduced additional carbs refined carbs, not complex carbs. They didn't add like shreds of lettuce. In order to make low-fat animal products taste any good, they had to add carbohydrates, and these were refined carbohydrates. And so the amount of uh, refined carbohydrates that people are consuming on a low-fat diet was much higher than the amount of refined carbohydrates on a regular-fat diet. And it turns out that the carbohydrates really are a worse culprit for health than the fats. And it is, in fact, the uh, carbohydrates that are so much more uh, causing atherosclerotic heart disease. 
and, and plaque buildup and narrowing of the arteries, uh, as well as, of course, obesity, weight gain, diabetes. And so this low-fat strategy, when substituted with refined carbohydrates, uh, led to a, a health disaster. Not to mention, not to mention, people weren't holding the animal protein itself suspect. They mm-hmm. thought, well, we think that eating animals is not as good for you. It must be the fat. It can't be the protein because protein is the holy nutrient, right? It's the, it's the best thing you can eat. Yeah. Turns out that's false too. And it's the, and it's the actual uh, animal protein itself at the, at the levels that, that we are consuming it in the Western industrialized nations that in and of itself is bad for you as well. And so if you compare the low-fat population to the regular fat population, regular fat population is healthier. And if you compare the regular fat population to the vegan population, you get rid of the animal protein as well, the vegan population is even healthier. That's fine. And so that's, that's how we um, have come to evolve our understanding about low-fat. Wow. So, and you also mentioned phosphates uh, found in like dark colas and stuff like that. Could you delve a little deeper? Yeah. Now, this is a very uh, little known piece of information about nutrition. Um, phosphates are a very common ingredient in a lot of the foods that we consume that are that are processed mm-hmm. or packaged. Um, they're very common uh, as a whitening agent. Uh, they are found in many breakfast cereals, uh, some breads, uh, lots of staples that we consume routinely without much thought. Um, and they're also found in some, some sodas as well. And what happens when you consume phosphates is uh, they result in calcification of your arteries yeah. rapidly, rapidly. So when you get old and frail, and have had a lifetime of, of bad eating and smoking, you get calcifications of your blood vessels. But when you consume phosphates, you get calcifications of your blood vessels much more rapidly. Mm-hmm. And, and it, is a, it is a very striking and very uh, severe disease that you are risking when you consume phosphates at a high level. Now, you may not be consuming a whole lot of phosphates. You may be consuming a lot more phosphates than you thought. Yeah. But given that you have so many different uh, variables that could be assaulting your circulation, definitely look for the phosphates and take them out of your shopping cart. What foods can you avoid? Just processed foods in general? What yeah, phosphates are only going to be in processed foods. They're not going to be in whole foods. So there's no vegetables, there's no fruits, there's no beans, grains uh, that have phosphates of any, that, that you have to watch out for. These are, these are uh, added in processing. I know the World Health Organization just a few years ago talked about processed foods and how they can cause cancer. So it's interesting as, as time elapses, all this stuff comes out. Um, well, cancer, cancer is just one of the things, right? Uh, I mean... Yes, uh, cancer is a horrible disease, but uh, more people die of heart disease than they do of cancer. And, uh, and we're talking about effects on your blood vessels, your circulation, and that's yeah. all about your heart. So how's your diet? Do you get animal protein or are you mainly plant protein? How's it work? 
Yeah, so I am mainly plant-based and I eat whole food plant-based. So what that means is I really try to eat right out of the produce section. I really try to minimize food that is processed uh, or ingredients that are extracted to the extent that I can when I'm preparing my own food. However, I am not entirely uh, rigid or, or a purist about it. So I will eat a very small amount of animal products when I'm at somebody's house who's taking the time to prepare a special meal and invites me to have some. And uh, it's not, I'm not allergic to it, so I will, you know, I'll eat a meal like that now and then. Or if I go and travel somewhere exotic and there's some local fare that they're really known for, I might want to try it. Um, or, or on a special occasion, what have you. But if you looked at all of the calories I consume over the course of the year, I'm sure 95% of them are plant-based. Now, if a person is 100% plant-based, they, they may well be even healthier than me, but if they are 100% plant-based for political reasons, uh, for spiritual reasons, for moral reasons, I absolutely respect that. And my own internal uh, motivation is not quite at that level um, to push myself to absolute, but I have absolute respect for those who do. And I found that for my journey, getting uh, into a plant-based um, healthy lifestyle, allowing myself that for me personally allowed me to be able to sustain it over these past 10 years. But I have found that over the past few years, I've been able to relinquish even more and more, but I still do not set an absolute line in the sand for myself. And I think for me and for some other people, that approach may allow it to be sustainable. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, I read that you do about 90-10 approach. I myself, that's where I'm at. And um, it's what's sustainable for me, you know, so and I do have friends that do both both sides, you know, they're mainly animal protein or they're 100% just vegan and they only have those types of products. I don't think it's honest to say that, hey, if you want to eat all animal products or you want to eat all processed foods, if that's good for you, that's good because it's probably not good for you. I think it's okay to actually call out that it's better to eat plants and animals. But as you know, in medicine, or at least this is what we say in surgery, the solution to pollution is dilution. And what that means is, you know, if we get a contaminant in a surgical field, we irrigate it out and irrigate it out and irrigate it out. And at some point, the concentration will be so diluted that it probably won't set up an infection. Um, if you're eating plant-based diet and you have a little bit of animal product now and then, just strictly from a biochemical standpoint, not from a moral standpoint, not from an environmental standpoint, just from a biochemical standpoint, it's not likely that that small amount suddenly poisoned you and ruined you and everything you've done at that point is now lost and ruined. Um, but I think that it is valid to encourage everybody to be predominantly, mostly, if not entirely, plant-based and whole food plant-based because there are plenty of plant-based foods that are processed, that are extracted, that are not healthy. Donuts wow. are vegan. Right. A donut's vegan. Yeah, yeah you're right. You know, a, a, a packet of sugar is vegan, but that's not healthy. And so whole food plant based is really the way to go uh, 
or at least predominantly. And the other thing is, if you're going to eat an animal portion, eat a lot of vegetables at that same meal because they may play defense for you. Wow. Yeah, you mentioned that in the book as well. Next, I wanted to talk about the ingredients of semen. It was really cool how in the book you actually had like a, a nutrition label for semen. So but what is the ingredients in semen? I'm sure a lot of people are interested in that. Well, semen is going to have uh, a lot of fructose in it uh, because that's providing energy to the sperm. The semen is a liquid in which the sperm cells are uh, swimming around on their journey to the egg. And the semen also has some other enzymes in it that allows that liquid to solidify when it needs to kind of anchor onto the walls of the vagina and then to liquefy again to complete its last leg across the cervix and get to that egg. So these molecules, these enzymes, the fructose, they're there to support the sperm and get its job done. And as a result, different molecules have uh, different characteristics, including different flavors. And it turns out that, like so much uh, in our bodies, um, these molecules and their different ratios and concentrations are affected by what we eat. And although I don't have personal knowledge about this, my research has indicated that for those who are connoisseurs, they find that semen from a man who eats predominantly plant-based tends to be lighter and sweeter than from a guy who eats predominantly animal-based or is taking a lot of animal protein supplements where the semen tends to be saltier and more bitter. Yeah, you mentioned a study of, um, of swallowers and maybe some health benefits. Is this, uh, are there any health benefits to swallowing? I think that the health benefits of swallowing semen is controversial. Um, okay. You know, there are some who theorize that by exposing the woman's immune system to the semen and getting her used to it, she'll be less likely to reject the sperm. Uh, but I don't think that there is very solid evidence about that. And who knows, maybe a little bit of wishful thinking on the part of the investigator. <laughs> <laughs> Sounded like it, definitely. Yeah. I think that if semen was too healthy, we would eat ourselves into extinction. So <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> I, think it, I think it's probably, you know, primarily meant for uh, a different orifice. Okay. Yeah, next question I had, actually a lot of our audience, they submitted uh, questions. And one of the most common questions from males specifically was penis enhancement, um, bigger, harder, faster. What's actually proven to make your size bigger other than surgery? This was a question that was asked a lot. So It's a question I get asked a lot too. Bad. When, I, when I told my friends I was going to be a urologist, I got that question asked a lot. I don't know a guy who hasn't asked that question at one point in their life. So um, the short answer <laughs> is not much. Not much makes your penis bigger. If you want to look at all the devices and gizmos out there, the penis traction device, the, the stretching device, mm -hmm. that, that may increase your penis if you use it for six months or a year, 
by a whopping centimeter, maybe oh. maybe a little over a centimeter, maybe. Now that's okay. what I call a long run for a short slide. Very true. Now, if you have a disease of your penis where it has shrunken because of poor blood flow, because mm. you have bad circulation, or Peroni's disease, which is a which is a scarring of the lining of the shaft of the penis so it can't expand the way it used to, then you can regain some or all of your length with a penis traction device. And in those cases, yes, you can get meaningful improvement in length back to where you were. But to go from normal to super normal, uh, very, very little gains to be made, if any, and certainly not worth the trouble. There is no pill that makes your penis bigger. It just makes your penis hard again. And they get around that claim by saying, well, yeah, it's bigger because it's erect. Well, yeah, yeah, erect is bigger. Great, thank you. There is no um, cream. There is no um, electrode. There is, there is no thing that makes your thing actually bigger. Wow, myth busting. Because, you know, you hear these things about ginseng, horny goat weed, malcoot. Well, yeah. All of those ingredients do have the potential to improve the blood flow to your penis and give you better erections on you to get to your maximal size, but it won't make your own maximal erection any bigger. Yeah. So step two, I, w I wanted to talk about exercise and sex exercise. This is a good one because we're going to have a lot of practical tips in here. So how does exercise impact our reproductive health? So exercise is good for your erections the way diet is good because it's good for your circulation. Mm -hmm. And your erections need a good circulation, good blood flow, because that's what your erection is, it's blood flow into the penis. And exercise, routine, uh, vigorous exercise, does increase the flow through your blood vessels. It also, reduces, it also results in release of nitric oxide. That, that molecule that increases blood flow. Uh, and it also releases other, other molecules in your blood that counteract toxins in your blood. And so like eating healthy plant-based meals, exercise also results in an increase in molecules that are healthy for your circulation. Now there's a specific exercise that can also help your penis specifically, and that is Kegel exercises. Kegel exercises exercise the muscles of the pelvic floor. Those are the muscles that wrap around the base of your penis and around your prostate and around your anus. And when those muscles contract, they help you not poop on yourself or they help you uh, hold back your urine. And uh, these muscles can be exercised by making that same squeeze you make when you're trying not to pee or poop. These muscles are routinely recommended to be exercised to women after they give birth to try to strengthen their, their urine control. But they're almost never recommended to men. But it turns out that the same muscles that are help, helping you not pee also are squeezing the base of your penis when you're getting aroused, when you're getting an erection. And as they contract around the base of the penis down, down inside, they help trap the blood in it and they help your erection stay longer and stronger. 
And if you deliberately exercise those muscles with those Kegel exercises, you can improve your erections. And that's been shown in a clinical study where guys who had erectile problems were given a very intensive regimen of exercising those muscles under the supervision of pelvic physical therapists with biofeedback mechanisms. Mm-hmm. And they had improvements that were as good or better than another arm of guys in the study who were given by Agra. Yeah, you mentioned more than 80% of men were able to triple how long they could last from an average of 39 seconds to an average of 146 seconds. So right, so, how- so now, now we're talking about ejaculation as opposed to the hardness of the erection. So, so those same muscles also are the ones that contract when you have a climax. Mm-hmm. And, when you eject, and, and when they are contracting rhythmically, they are squeezing the semen out. They're causing you to ejaculate. And when you exercise those muscles deliberately, it may help you go longer before you ejaculate. Why is that? I don't think people fully know, but one possible explanation is because you are more familiar with how those muscles feel as they're contracting, mm-hmm. you may be able to get an earlier signal that they're, they're about to contract and you may be able to relax that contraction and stave off the contraction because you're more in tune with how that feels when it's starting to happen. So say I want to do Kegel exercises. Uh, can you recommend kind of like how many sets do I do? How many reps do I do? How's it work? Well, you know, it's one of those things that is not uh, set in stone. Okay. So I would suggest that you do a combination of short and long holds. So you would squeeze one, two, relax. Squeeze one, two, relax. Maybe do, you know, 10 or 20 of those in a row, whatever you can do. And for some guys starting out, they may not be able to do very many, and then they'll build up. And then maybe do some long holds. You hold it for 10 seconds at a time. Maybe do three, four, 10, 15 of those, whatever you can handle. And I would do maybe a a few reps of those, and I would do that two or three times a day. And the beauty of that is that you can do Kegel exercises anytime, anywhere, and nobody knows you're doing them. I mean, I'm doing them right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Yes, and a nice trick to know if you're doing it right is stand in front of a mirror uh, undressed, and if you're doing it right, you're not contracting your your buttocks muscles. Okay? Oh. It's not about squeezing your butt muscles. It's about squeezing the, the anal sphincter. Okay. Yeah and the urethral sphincter, which they, they both squeeze simultaneously. It's not like you separate it. Yeah. And when you squeeze those muscles, because they contract and shorten, they actually will draw the penis inward into the body slightly. Okay. So you should see, when you squeeze, if you're doing it correctly, you should see your penis look like it's retracting into you just a little bit. I'm talking about maybe a half a centimeter or something. Gotcha. Yeah, my wife's going to catch me in the mirror doing this tonight. So that's <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Um, something you mentioned also, sitting. Sitting can have deleterious effects on the body. And this is something Dr. Dean Ornish is big on too. Can you delve a little deeper into sitting and what it causes? Well, um, I don't have a lot of expertise on the physiology of sitting. So I'll just keep it simple. Mm-hmm. If you're more sedentary you know, you're going to have less vigorous blood flow. You're going to have less of the benefits of having uh, more activity and better circulation. I think that 
sitting for prolonged periods of time, in my expertise as a urologist, does lead to inflammation and pain in the prostate or in the pelvic floor. And so I do see a lot of guys come in the office who have pain that they think is a prostate infection or something wrong with their urinary tract, but it's really because of their jobs requiring many hours in a row of sitting, whether they're, they're truck drivers or whether they're computer programmers. It's prolonged sitting for a lot of guys wreaks havoc over time on their pelvic floor. Sitting on seats that are protuberant into the prostate area, such as a bicycle seat, yep. for, for some guys actually has a harmful effect on their erections because that wedge-shaped seat may fit perfectly in between their butt bones and the blood vessels and the nerves that are going to the penis are snug right under the rim of the butt bones. And if that, if you're built just right for that bike seat, that bike yeah. seat wedges up in there and can damage the nerves and the arteries and can give you weak erections. It can be reversible, but although bicycling is an excellent exercise for many people and gives you the benefits of exercise for your sexual function, for some people, the seat just doesn't work and they need to switch gears as it were and go to a different sport. A study demonstrated inactive men had more than 10 times the risk of having erection problems compared to active guys. You also see improved erections in men that exercise who have hypertension in as little as eight weeks when they start exercising. So I think you know, that's something that really puts things into perspective that if I just start exercising even a little bit every day, even in an amount of eight weeks, I might see a significant difference. That is right. And what's even more exciting is that you can see rapid improvements just like that, sometimes even sooner than that, with your change in food. Changing your diet can result in profound improvements in your physiology in surprising ways. Your cholesterol drops, your blood sugar control improves. And these things can happen literally in a week yeah. to a few weeks. And and exercise is very important, but I will tell you that I think diet is, as important as exercise is, diet is even more important. Yeah. Maybe twice as important, maybe three times as important. Wow. Because you can exercise a lot and think you're making up for bad eating patterns as long as you're hitting the gym. True. And, and you're, you're just gonna remain behind the eight ball. You can be lazy and not exercise as much as you should, and eat very healthy, and kind of get away with it longer than you, longer than you would expect. That's a fact. And you know, anybody who's exercised for any amount of time, you'll eventually hear that the real work gets done in the kitchen. And if you could, if you could couple that with excellent exercise, that's when you could start getting the abs. You know, so yeah. Sure and and the, and the longevity. I mean, exercise okay. is good for you, and it may not just not just cosmetic, but you know. You can't always control, you know, your access to, to exercise, although you, you pretty much can, but, you know, life gets in the way, but you can choose what you put on your fork. I mean, no one's forcing you to swallow something. Very true. Next, I want to talk about exercise and testosterone. You had some pretty awesome mentions in the book. Could you tell us a little bit more? Yeah. So testosterone can't really be changed by any particular food. 
Yeah. And it actually can't really be changed in a meaningful way by any particular exercise. That is to say, if you bench press a heavy weight, it's not going to make the blood levels of your testosterone go up in a meaningful way. However, within that muscle group that you're exercising, yes, testosterone levels will go up. But you have to have a sensor, a very you know fine little needle probe in there measuring it at that time that you're exercising. And that makes sense because the muscle is, is, is relying on that for part of the conditioning of itself. But if you take a guy who works out heavy weights and a guy who doesn't, and or you take that same guy, I should say, before mm-hmm. and after he works out versus not, his testosterone level doesn't change. But the way exercise can change your testosterone is by getting lean. So if you are overweight or obese, that excess fat will convert some of your testosterone to estradiol, an estrogen-like molecule. The less fat you have, the less you'll be converting the testosterone you're making away to estradiol and the higher your testosterone levels can be. But it's not that the uh, exercising of your muscle raised your testosterone. It was the elimination of the fat that raised your testosterone, which can also be accomplished even more effectively by combining exercise with good eating practices as opposed to exercise alone. Yep. And that's where, you know, one of the things that I read that just blew my mind, it was for every four to five kilograms per square meter increase in BMI, testosterone drops the equivalent of 10 years of age. So, you know, I found that something that's so significant and something that's fully in my control if I'm able to exercise and eat properly. That's correct. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, we want to live a long time. And imagine just by being obese, we're taking years off of our hormonal lifespan. It's crazy. So, yeah, that's kind of where you get into diabetes and obesity. Um, What happens then? So there's this syndrome called the metabolic syndrome. And it's diabetes, obesity, high blood pressure. And Various combinations of these three things make up this metabolic syndrome, which results in higher rates of sickness and death. Diabetes is a sickness we know, but that leads to heart disease, heart attacks, heart failure, death, blindness, loss of limbs from gangrene, etc. Hypertension leads to heart disease, heart attacks, death, blindness, Uh, and and obesity leads to... uh, you know, generalized sickness, as well as the diabetes that leads to that and the hypertension that leads to that. And they're, so they're all linked. And all of these conditions can be prevented or reduced by how we eat and if we exercise. And the most common form of diabetes is type 2 diabetes, is primarily a function of how we eat. It's an acquired disease. And we can prevent it and we can even reverse it in many cases by eliminating, minimizing refined sugars in our diets and transitioning to a whole food plant-based diet and watching our calorie intake. Um, As we get older, our metabolism slows. We require less calories. We need to be cognizant of that. Some people do intermittent fasting as a strategy to achieve lower caloric intake. If you eat a whole food plant-based diet, that tends to be less calorically dense than uh, processed foods or animal-based foods. 
uh, although you can eat unhealthy vegan foods as well. This metabolic syndrome probably accounts for 70% of all the sickness in the United States. And we talk about how expensive uh, our healthcare system is. Well, gosh, if everybody just stopped eating poorly, imagine cutting 70% off of the healthcare spend. That is unbelievable. We're talking about just for Medicare alone, you'd be talking about $200 billion a year in savings. But hey, then you and I might, you and I might not have a job though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's where conversations like this, I hope inspire something like that, you know, and one in three men in the United States will develop diabetes and 50% chance they're going to have a lower testosterone because of the diabetes. So I, I found that really interesting. And hopefully that's, that's enough motivation for people to start seeking a more whole foods diet. Yeah. So, you know, if you, you may or may not care if you get a heart attack one day. And some guys just don't care. They've heard it. They know it. But, you know, it ain't happening now. I don't know when it's going to happen. That's when I'm old. Mm -hmm. Okay. But you may care if you can get it up. You may care if, uh, if you can have uh, an erection and keep an erection. And that day is coming sooner than you think, so yeah. to speak. Because erectile dysfunction starts to hit in the 40s, not the 60s. And if you're in your 20s or 30s, uh, you start changing your eating habits now, you can push the needle back. So even if you don't care about your heart, you probably care about your penis. And there's plenty of reason. We've gone over reason after reason after reason to make sure you're exercising, make sure you're you're eating healthy, and as I said before, getting enough sleep, getting away from toxins, excess alcohol and drugs, and we haven't talked about this much, but also your exposure to pornography. Oh yeah, that's uh, that's actually what we're going into next. Before we do that, I want to speak. So we we hit Kegel exercises. That's one way to be able to help your sex life. Um, I you mentioned the start stop technique. What's that? So the start stop technique is a behavioral therapy mm -hmm. for people of premature ejaculation. Just as Kegel exercises might help you with premature ejaculation, this is a different way. The principle is it's helping you retrain your nervous system. So when a guy reaches sexual climax, before he climaxes, he'll reach this point of no return. Once he passes this threshold, he's going to climax, and there's there's no way to stop it. It's a reflex. It's a very complex reflex that involves a specific center in the spine in coordination with the brain and with the pelvic structures of the prostate, cell vesicles, and, and sphincters, etc. So start-stop is a technique where a guy will either stimulate himself or his partner will stimulate him with their hand initially. So just before that point of no control, and then you stop, kind of calm down, and then you stimulate again. And just before that point of no return, you stop. And basically, you learn to be able to last longer and longer, taking the time to do this. And maybe you do it yourself first, and then you bring your partner in, and then you graduate from hand to actual sexual insertion. And again, stimulation with with intercourse up to the point and then stop. And when you stop, 
For some people, they'll do a brisk squeeze to kind of make it a little uncomfortable and bring them back down from the threshold a little easier. And it's an exercise to allow you to train yourself to last longer and longer and longer with this kind of a biofeedback. Ah, so combination of kegels and stop-start technique may help you in the bedroom. Yes, and if it's not effective enough, because some people's condition is really hardwired, it's really neurologically, it's how they're born, and, and it's, a normal, it's a normal variation for many guys. Uh, it's only probably pretty recent in, in our sexual history that sex is a recreational activity yeah. <laughs> as opposed to a uh, you know, way to propagate our DNA. So it's normal variant for many guys, uh, and it's just how they are. And if these techniques aren't effective, which they aren't always effective, there are effective prescription remedies, and there's an effective over-the-counter remedy called promescent, which is a spray that allows the person to last longer because they are less sensitive and they hit that threshold less easily. Okay. And so step three, going offline. This is such an important and not discussed enough topic. So pornography is the largest sector in the entertainment industry, $97 billion. I actually spoke with one of my friends, Devon Franklin, and he was putting a stat in his book that just left me with my mouth open. It was in 2016, all films released made about $11 billion. So comparing $97 billion to all films released $11 billion, and if that's not enough, Porn receives more traffic each month than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter put together. It is ubiquitous. We are in a sea of streaming porn. And porn's been around forever, but it's never been so available. Yeah. That's the, that's the real big change that's happened. And because it's so available, guys and girls and gals, but, but uh, guys are exposing themselves to it at a frequency that they never would have been able to. Yeah. Okay? When, when a pornographic movie was only available by going to a porn theater, you couldn't check out porn every few hours every day yeah. unless, you, unless you worked in that theater. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, and, and if you worked at that theater, you wouldn't be able to see a thousand different videos a year. Okay. So there is so much content coming across the eyeballs that what it's doing is actually measurably shrinking key brain centers that are important for normal sexual response, for desire and for reaching climax and for getting erections. All of those are negatively affected by high frequency pornographic viewing. And when you do an MRI scan on the brain of a person who is a high frequency porn viewer, you will see those structures diminish in size. And this is a real physical thing. This is just as physical as if I gave you a blood pressure pill that caused erectile dysfunction and you got erectile dysfunction as a side effect of that blood pressure medication. That's a physical cause of erectile dysfunction. This is a physical cause of high frequency pornography viewing on your sexual function, but it is reversible. Mm -hmm. And so if you cold turkey and stop watching, after a few months, Guys who are affected in such a way have been shown to get back towards normal. It also, uh, for those who are viewing it at a high frequency, can have disruptive and, and deteriorating effects on their relationships, on their marriages. Uh, married guys who are studied 
for high-frequency form watchers note the deterioration in their marital satisfaction. And so what we're seeing uh, really for the first time, probably in human history, is a crazy high incidence of erectile dysfunction and difficulty reaching climax in high school-aged guys. Okay, These are guys who normally should get hard when the wind blows. And 25% of high school-aged males are reporting some or another degree of erectile dysfunction. But they are also starting to watch porn at around age 12, probably even younger now. Um, and high-frequency porn is like, as I mentioned, like watching it daily or, or many times a week. You know, when you're watching it, uh, you know, intermittently, occasionally, there's no evidence I've seen that you have these serious, you know, deleterious effects at a physiological level. But so many, so many people are watching it, particularly young people, particularly people that are really too young to be watching it at all um, at a really high frequency. And that's where you, you mentioned the part of the brain that's responsible for romantic love it's known as the right caudate of the striatum. It's it's been proven to shrink over time with high volume porn exposure. Um, you also mentioned the putamen, um, which is another brain region that makes you hard. We see that power down. That's yeah. So you can measure how these things function with different uh, you know different tests and assays, and mm -hmm. and these are physical changes that are measured over time. And it's something that should be on our minds as doctors. Uh, when we're trying to evaluate and help our patients, it's a question we should be asking. This is a fact that many doctors aren't even aware of yet, mm -hmm. but that information is starting to get out there more and more. And the more this information can get out there direct to the patient, direct to the consumer, the better to avoid even having to have that encounter with the doctor. So there was a 10-year study of marriages that showed the more porn the husband watched, the greater chance of problems in marriage. So do you see this often where, you know, porn use is actually causing problems in marriages? Well, I'm not a uh, behavioral medicine specialist, so I don't tend to counsel couples on the details of their marital issues. Mm -hmm. um, but I do see plenty of married men who have erectile dysfunction and there is an increasing number of those men who are watching porn frequently and they have erectile dysfunction and those two are linked in some of those cases. Yes. But the other aspects of marital discord, I don't delve into necessarily in my own practice, but I'm well aware of that being an issue in the literature. And I work closely with a behavioral sexual specialist in our community who's very renowned, Stephanie Bueller. And she says that since the advent of streaming pornography, there have been a whole slew of relationship problems uh, that she is now seeing uh, for the first time. One very interesting uh, problem that I don't describe in my book, but I think is worth pointing out, is the unrealistic expectations that men are holding women to based on women's behavior in pornography. Mm. And so when a man is self-educated about sex, primarily from frequent pornographic viewing, his expectation of a female sexual responsiveness is completely unrealistic. And 
she has many uh, patients now who are women who are being rejected by their boyfriends, by their by their lovers, because they're not having screaming orgasms eight, ten in a row. Um, they're not writhing around like the fish on the end of a spear. You know, it's you know, it's just it's sad that there's these unrealistic expectations that then set up the failure of what is a normal partner human relationship. And that's a very different problem than the effects on the brain centers reducing a guy's ability to have an erection and have sex. This is all about the, the disruptive nature of the human relationship. And you also mentioned size. Uh, 40% of men who come to the urologist's office are seeking penis enlargement. They may be finding in porn that penises are larger than the penises that are the average everyday penis. So what is the average everyday penis? Yeah. So the average penis size is a little less than five and a half inches. And normal is two standard deviations smaller than that, up to two standard deviations greater than that. And pornography is entertainment, right? So the people that they choose to portray on screen are not average everyday people. No one's gonna pay money or take time out to watch average people do average things that they themselves are doing averagely, yeah. right? We don't go and fill a stadium to watch five foot six guys try and you know shoot layups. Yeah. We don't. We go and watch seven foot guys slam dunk. Yep, you're right. And that's what porn is. Porn is, you know, seven and a half, eight and a half inch guys slam dunking. And those guys are not normal. They are super normal, and that's why they have been selected to do pornography. And they are not the average. And unfortunately, most guys don't see other guys' erections aside from pornography. Yeah. I see them because I'm a urologist. But what guys do see is other guys' flaccid penises, maybe in the gym, in the urinal, whatever. Mm. And you have to understand that the size of the penis flaccid uh, often does not correlate size of the penis hard. Some of us are showers. That means we're about the same flaccid as we are hard. And some of us are growers, which means can't judge the book by its cover. It looks small when it's soft, but it gets a lot bigger when it's hard. And if you're a grower and you're looking down at your little guy and the guy across from you uh, changing his shorts is a shower and you think, well, I know I get three times or four times bigger when I get hard. Oh, my God. If that guy gets three or four times, I must be just tiny. Well, it's not the case. <laughs> and so on average, most guys are similar size. They're just very different when they're flaccid. And remember, the average size is a little under five and a half inches. Finally, a lot of us are overweight these days. And as we get more overweight, there's a fat pad that accumulates and, and hides uh, some of our real estate. OK, we get obstructed view and we're looking down there. And for a lot of guys, there's an extra inch, two or three that's just covered up by their fat pad. Wow. And, and if they were lean, their penis would look that much longer. Oh, man. So when you educate your patients on this, do you sometimes get feedback where they're like, oh, maybe I don't really need reconstructive surgery? That makes Oh, yeah. Sense. Yeah, yeah. The vast majority of patients who come in looking for surgery to enlarge your penis, the vast majority have normal sized penises. They oh. just didn't know it. Wow, that's so and once they're educated, the vast majority don't want surgery anymore. But there's a small percentage of people who are very obsessed over the size of their penis. Yeah. And even when they're educated, they don't buy it. They don't believe it. They feel great anxiety and distress over their penis. 
and they have penis dysmorphic syndrome. Mm-hmm. And it's akin to like anorexia. It's, it's a body it's a body image problem that is a true psychological problem. And it causes them a great deal of psychological distress. And surgery is not the answer because surgery doesn't actually even work very well. Uh, what they need is behavioral counseling. Step four is detox. Let's talk drugs. Let's talk alcohol. We've all heard of whiskey dick, but I've also heard one glass of red wine can actually help the man downstairs. So what does research say? I think research shows that moderate alcohol intake probably is not uh, going to impair erections. What I mean by moderate, probably on the range of about five beverages a week. Okay. Um, but excessive consumption or binge drinking definitely will impair erections. It impairs your nervous system and, and the reflexes that have to happen in your brain centers and your spine. Real severe alcoholism and cirrhosis disease of the liver results in um, increased sex hormone binding globulin and lower testosterone and, of course, nerve damage and erectile dysfunction, not to mention the, the absolute uh, terrible nutrition alcoholics will tend to have uh, by not you know, sacrificing food for alcohol. So, yeah, excess alcohol bad, moderate, you know, five drinks a week, probably no problem. Okay. How about cigarettes versus marijuana? I mean, majority of people understand that smoking isn't good for you. It's not going to help the man downstairs. Is there a difference between the two? Well, I think that um, we know that cigarettes cause hardening of the arteries and erectile dysfunction. And the controversy about marijuana, I think, is more about does the psychoactive elements of marijuana, THC, cause problems with your sexual function, with your, you know, your fertility. And the answer to that is controversial when consumed at moderate levels. But you're also smoking burning, smoldering leaves, just as you are when you're smoking tobacco. Yep. And the other pollutants, the, the, the other tars and, and um, you know, carbonized, aerosolized uh, fragments that you're getting into your lungs and, and then processing through your blood probably aren't very good for your arteries or your lungs. Um, I don't have good studies to, to discuss that, but again, it's been difficult to study marijuana because of the, the federal prohibitions on it. Um, but I think we'll likely get into more and more studies of marijuana. But at excess levels of marijuana usage, Yes, there does seem to be uh, cases where you'll see uh, a suppression of testosterone um, or, or a negative effect on, on fertility. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, so I know maybe it's been said that sex centers in the brain may be switched on by marijuana with moderate use. Is there any fact to that? Well, I think it's possible, and I think that further studies are really going to be helpful. But I think we're at a point now where it's not necessarily fair to say that moderate use of marijuana lowers your testosterone, ruins your sperm count, because I think the data doesn't really support that. Oh, wow. Okay. So step five and the last step is sleep. What can you tell us about sleep and how it affects the little man downstairs? So sleep is important for so many of our body systems. And we only recently have started to appreciate just how important sleep was. For a long time, we didn't know why we slept. Mm-hmm. Uh, now we know that if we don't sleep, we get in trouble. 
Uh, sleep apnea is a very common condition, and it's more common uh, for overweight populations, and we have a lot of overweight people. And even if you're not overweight, you can have sleep apnea. And sleep apnea is where your sleep is interrupted all night long. And what happens there is that causes you to have this surge of adrenaline when you can't breathe. Now, you might not be conscious, but your body is feeling this adrenaline surge. Well, adrenaline uh, causes the blood vessels to your penis to shut off. It stops the flow of blood to your penis so that it can conserve that blood to go to your heart and lungs and deal with whatever the stress is. And when you have sleep apnea, your baseline level of adrenaline is actually higher all day long. And so those blood vessels to your penis are going to be more constricted and you're going to have less baseline blood flow to your penis all day long if you've got untreated sleep apnea. Furthermore, our testosterone production, which is important for our sexual function, is regulated by signals from our pituitary gland. And these signals are released and they go down to our testicles and they turn our testicles on and make testosterone. And that happens during REM sleep. Wow. If you don't get enough REM sleep, you're not going to get enough signal and your testosterone level will be lower. And studies show that night shift workers who don't really sleep that great during the day, yeah. it's not like a true swap, have lower testosterone levels when studied than, than regular day shift workers. And so if you want to have Good blood flow to your penis, good testosterone levels. You need to get good uninterrupted sleep. Okay. So are there any health hacks to have better sleep for patients? Yeah, there's a, a whole process called sleep hygiene. Yeah. And what that means is sort of setting you up to be able to sleep better. And you can find these tips uh, online easily, but they include things like powering down the screen time. Uh, within a couple hours before you go to bed. And if you do have to look at a screen, set it to that yellowy nighttime tone rather than that bluey daytime tone. Mm -hmm. Reading off a printed page rather than looking at a screen prior to going to bed. Um, not exercising right before going to bed. Not doing things that get your adrenaline up right before you go to bed. Keeping the windows very blacked out. Keeping the sounds and the distractions to a minimum really setting yourself up to mellow out and eventually fall asleep. Okay, that makes sense. I know taking melatonin may help people doze off at night. Yeah, for some people, melatonin is helpful. Uh, it's interesting. It's actually on the order sets of our hospital orders uh, now. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Patient sleep. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. So the five takeaways that I hope everybody gets from this is eat healthy, exercise, stay away from pornography, detox from the drugs and alcohol and sleep hygiene if we if we're able to do all five of those you can maximize general health as well as male reproductive health absolutely right you got it okay a plus a plus <laughs> That's awesome. well, thank you doc so now we're going to move to the most popular portion of our podcast where our audience submit questions for you through our Instagram account. Uh, I put up a post yesterday, and in about 24 hours, we got over 60 questions from wow. mainly mainly males. And I'm not going to be asking you 60 questions. So a lot of them were re repeat questions that our team hand-selected, and we're going to be asking you the ones that were the most common. Okay. So question number one by Allie D. Henderson. She asks, is blue balls a real thing? Uh, the answer is yes, it is. Oh. So have mercy. No, I'm just kidding. No, it's a 
It's a real thing. Um, and one common cause for it is what's called varicoceles, which yeah. are enlarged veins that are a normal variant for a lot of guys. But for some guys, enlarged veins around the testicles can cause congested flow. And that congested flow not returning uh, back to the heart briskly because the veins are sort of inefficient in how the blood flows through them can result in pain in the testicles. And, and that can be exacerbated by um, just prolonged uh, standing or, or athletic activity, or for some people exacerbated by prolonged period of sexual arousal. Oh, question number two is by Dr. Justin. He asks, prostate artery embolization or prostatectomy? Well, prostate artery embolization is a treatment for an enlarged prostate to shrink it by choking off the blood supply to it. Prostatectomy typically refers to removing the entire prostate because there's cancer in it and is not used for just an enlarged prostate. For an enlarged prostate, we tend to use treatments that don't remove the prostate, but carve it out, heat it, or in, other, in some other fashion like embolization, shrink it. So multiples of men actually asked, can masturbation be healthy and does it affect the quality of semen? Masturbation is a healthy human function. It's only unhealthy if it's done in an obsessive compulsive way, in a very idiosyncratic way that then prevents you from enjoying partnered sexual experiences. Um, frequent masturbation will reduce the sperm count. And if you masturbate frequently enough, you can even reduce it down to almost zero or zero. But it's not a permanent effect. It's just simply depleting because sperm is produced at a continuous rate, at a constant rate. And if you deplete the store quickly enough, there won't be much there, but then it'll refill. And so it's not any type of actual um, permanent change, just a matter of filling and emptying. Okay, that makes sense. Question number four is by Bad R. Marana. She asks, any new insights on the causes of BPH, benign prostate hyperplasia? Well, I think one new insight is that there is a link between prostate inflammation and uh, benign prostate disease and diet. And populations who consume very low percentages of animal products in their diet tend to have less prostate problems, whether it's cancer or inflammation or enlargement. And so I think that going to a whole food plant-based diet can help diminish the development of BPH. That's pretty cool. All right. Well, question number five. A lot of medical students were asking, what was the path that you took to be where you're at in urology? Well, I didn't know I was going to be a urologist when I entered medical school. In fact, I thought I might be a psychiatrist or a family practitioner. Cool. And it wasn't until I did my OBGYN rounds that I realized, hey, I'm really interested in OBGYN. Um, and it turned out that they had in vitro fertility just emerging uh, in, into the medical community. And I was at Cornell Medical School where they were a leader in in vitro fertility. And it got me very excited about this new high-tech uh, solution. And one of my friends said, well, if you think that's interesting, you should look at urology because that's like the male counterpart. And I didn't know what urology was. So I signed up for a rotation and, and I was fortunate in that it was a very prestigious department with amazing dynamic faculty and that was very attractive to me just just in a, in a social and intellectual way 
Yeah. Um, and then the, the male fertility aspect of it was interesting to me. And I myself had been diagnosed with varicoceles and underwent varicoceles surgery as a first year medical student. So when it came time to do my uh, clinical rotation and I got to sort of see that up front from the other side of the drapes, as okay. it were, um, uh, that, of course, resonated with me personally. I also had a met one of my faculty mentors happened to be a urologist. So there was a the universe kind of conspired against me. And uh, I concluded that, hey, I want to be a urologist. I want to be like one of these people. And um, so I did uh, residency and then I went back and did a fellowship in male infertility. And it's been it's been very rewarding, very fulfilling. That's awesome. So what was your major in, in college? Uh, I was a government major. Uh, I went oh. to Cornell University for undergrad, and I majored in uh, government. A lot of departments call it political science. We called it government. Gotcha. And, uh, and I did a lot of my extracurriculars in uh, theater arts, but I did all my pre-med requirements my first two years. So I had a very aggressive freshman sophomore year, and it turned out that uh, at the time I was a freshman at Cornell, we had the most pre-meds in a freshman class in the country, and it was written up in Time magazine. So it was a wow. highly, highly competitive experience at that time. Sounds kind of <laughs> stressful, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, but I'll tell you what, the, the, uh, the college students and the medical students and the residents today are so incredibly uh, intellectually gifted and talented. I know that I would not have been able to get into medical school today wow. with the kind of applicant I was back then. You guys, younger generations of, of doctors and wannabe doctors are just, you know, amazing, remarkable people and hats off to you all, really. Hey, that's an honor and privilege to hear from you. I mean, we, we do have access to computers, which allows us to, I guess, get more knowledge faster, but I mean. No, no I've had the pleasure of working with uh, medical students and residents and you know, the quality of the intellect is just um, it's just remarkable. It's uh, yeah. I think that doctors continue to be the best and the brightest in our society. That's beautiful. Well, thank you, doctor. Last question here. We ask every single one of our guests that's been on it is what is your definition of medspiration? So the first time you heard it, what did it invoke inside of you? Like sweatiness. Medspiration. Oh, oh like inspiration. <laughs> oh yeah. No. Not perspiration. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I think I think medspiration is being able to positively impact one or more people through the knowledge and the skill set that you have. It's it's that feedback loop where you take your skills and you take your effort, you apply it to an individual or to a population, they improve and they acknowledge that they improved because of your intervention. And that gives you an incredible amount of inspiration. It gives you happiness the way nothing else can. Um, and it motivates you to do it again. Wow. Well, that's what your book did for me. So for everybody out there, the penis book, this is one of the best books I've ever read. I really recommend that you go out there. Also, the penis book. I recommend this one, too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Doc. There you have it, folks. I hope you guys left this one feeling med-spired. If you learned something new or if you genuinely enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and rate it five stars. 
Medspiration is a 501c3 nonprofit charity organization. The more you help us grow, the more people we're able to help. Let's make a commitment together, guys, and attempt to live a healthier lifestyle, mentally, physically, and spiritually. And as always, you know what time it is. It's time to get out there and do something med-spiring.